What is up, internets? Welcome to Self-Defense from All Angles, the podcast where we try to expand the conversation surrounding self-defense. I'm your host, Randy King, owner of 8020 Conflict Management Strategies. This week, we're talking to Damon Reimer about his work with the homeless population. This was a fascinating episode. I'm so excited that Damon took the time out to have a conversation with us about this super important topic. In this episode, we cover tips on how to help the homeless if you're looking to help, tips on how to avoid staying in a homeless situation, some of the problems that people who are experiencing homelessness encounter and flaws in the system that is there to support them. We talk a lot about activism theater and how there isn't enough structures out there to help people avoid this. There's a lot of discussion about pre and post COVID numbers when it comes to this. And we also talk about what the most dangerous drug is and the addiction rate of that drug and why it's such a problem. Also, as you might imagine, in his Patreon portion, patreon.com slash Randy King Live, he tells us a story of where he was in a facility and he had to de-escalate a situation where a man with an ax was on meth and we walk that out. This is a super powerful, very important episode. I highly recommend you watch it, share it, share it with your friends. This episode is exactly the reason why I'm doing this podcast. It's not to talk to other self-defense experts and other podcast hosts, even though we are, it's to talk to people who are in the real world dealing with violence. If you, your organization, or your company are looking for more information when it comes to proactive self-defense that is education-driven, I'm available for workshops, seminars, and keynote speeches for your group. Now let's get to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Self-Defense from All Angles podcast. Today, we have on the show Damon Reimer. Damon is focusing right now on social work, and he's actually an old friend of mine. We go way, way back. We've been following each other back and forth. I'm actually really excited to have him on the show because... The point of this show, Self-Defense from All Angles, is to talk to people that aren't necessarily self-defense instructors, but who are still working in a spot where violence is potentially prevalent. And I think Damon fits the bill perfectly. So Damon, how are you today? I'm doing well, Randy. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Damon, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay. So educational background, I'm I'm a physician by training. I'm working in the vulnerable people with addictions field right now, helping them get healthcare, helping them get the basic needs that they provide. Everything from meeting people right out in the guys who are camping out in the bushes to working in homeless shelters. And as far as violence goes, it's interesting. I could imagine that's the recipe for interesting encounters is going into the environment where this stuff is happening. I imagine you have a ton of tales you can share with us. I'm really excited for your one-up story on Patreon. So make sure if you're not on Patreon right now, listeners, you might want to jump over there. Damon, what is your personal definition of self-defense? For me, it's do anything you need to to prevent violence from happening to you. Violence is a very broad subject. Some people think it's only physical violence, but there's definitely emotional, mental, and other types of violence that create trauma for you. And you need to defend yourself not just physically, but mentally from all that kind of stuff. That's a very all-encompassing integrated definition of it, which is why, 
like having you on the show because it's very similar to what I would say is self-defense. Damon, what do you wish more people knew about safety in your field? What do you wish they knew more about people who are experiencing addiction and homelessness? I think like if you're experiencing addiction and homelessness, everybody worries about their physical needs. And that's definitely a thing. You can't worry about your psychological needs until your physical needs are met. You don't have your physical needs met, shelter, food, that you can't worry about the psychological. However, it's not as simple as that. When you actually work in the field, you see how complex even just getting your physical needs and your physical safety taken care of. I've heard stories of every type of violence you can imagine done publicly. The public will just walk by. They don't care or they give the impression that they don't care. As far as in that industry goes, if you're working in that industry, self-awareness, aware of what's going on around you are probably the most important things. And I know you preach that like it's the Bible. Right. Well, and it's so important when it comes to this. So you mentioned, you mentioned two things I'd like to talk about. So number one, the first thing you mentioned is getting these people's needs met is hard. What hurdles do you face in order to treat the people you're working with? With the people I'm working with, there's a lot of trauma, Mm -hmm. be it institutional trauma, be it trauma from family. Trauma is kind of the biggest keyword and you have to be really aware of them and to help them with that trauma and build trust with them. And that is probably 10 times harder than it is said. We're dealing with people who've been through the residential school system. The government has failed them time after time after time. Institutions have failed them time after time. How do you build trust with people like that in order to get them their needs? And that takes a lot of give and take, a lot of time and a lot of patience. It doesn't happen overnight. That makes sense. For our international listeners, can you just quickly explain what the residential school system was and what it did? Yep. Basically what it was is something done by the Canadian government where they took the Indigenous population, forced them into religious schools in order to basically turn them into good quote unquote Canadians. And there was a lot of things that have come out since about trauma that they endured. A lot of it was in priests and churches and what the beatings they got, what we would consider torture nowadays. I've talked to people that they were locked in a dark room for three months at a time. And the people that were in these schools that were the authorities, and again, using the quoting marks, would do this to them. And when you're 10 years old, you're locked in a dark basement for three weeks, would you start trusting people? And then they would come in every now and then and beat them. I've heard stories of them being raped. You name it. It happened to them in that time frame. It's so, a very dark part of Canada's history. And I think it's important to bring it up because a lot of people think that Canada is like the land of Santa Claus and fairies and nothing bad happens up here. And while it's it's better than some, it's not without its flaws. And I think that's really important to point out. The other thing you mentioned is third-party intervention and the lack of third-party intervention because people see this and you said they, they see it or they even ignore it. Why do you think society has this cultural allowance of ignoring people who are in the most vulnerable situations? I think part of it is some of us have grown up with that mentality of, oh, that's just that quote unquote junkie on the street. That's just that they they aren't really people. They've been dehumanized in a lot of ways, which 
in itself is an act of violence right there. We as people have stopped seeing them as people. They're just, oh, it's just that guy I pass on my way to work that begs for money every day. We almost turn a, choose to turn a blind eye to it. Right. Well, and it's almost allowed, right? One of the major contracts I had was with a engineering company in Edmonton. And the reason they hired me for a series of seminars was because they had moved their base of operations to downtown Edmonton, which isn't great right now. And they were concerned about the homeless population. And when I came in with the actual figures and facts of like homeless people are five times more likely to be the victims of violence than cause violence. Like that's important to know. And what I think people forget is most of us, especially after COVID, are only two major life events in a row from potentially being homeless. If you don't have a support structure, if you had a major event, this is everyday people. This is not some monster that made these decisions. These are everyday people who have had potentially a really bad run. And now they're in a different situation that we could easily find ourselves in if we didn't have potentially the resources we have right now. Yeah, for sure. On that, one of the organizations I work with just started a program as a COVID response for people who were new to homelessness to stop them from falling into the system. And since January, so six months, they've housed over 35 people. And most of those people, I looked at the stats, I looked at the information, were employed. They were people who lost their housing due to COVID, due to landlords going, I have to sell my home because I can't pay the mortgage anymore. So you have to leave situations like that. And exactly that they were one, two paychecks away. There was no system for them to help. Right. And a month later, they're living in a bush. COVID was such a interesting situation because of, I could imagine, I didn't, I haven't looked it up. I don't know the numbers, but you're in the field. I'm assuming there was a rise in homelessness due to the pandemic. I would assume that it expanded, not exponentially, but there's probably a significant uptick in it. Yeah. I would say about it increased by probably one in four people. So one in four people out there right now is probably partially a result of COVID from what I've seen. Right. And they weren't homeless before the pandemic, but again, life circumstances just ended up that way. Yeah. This is why I'm always thanking my patrons because COVID was not an easy time for me. I travel and physically interact with people for a living and those were both illegal. I was in that weird bracket where I made just enough money even during COVID because I was still working through online that I couldn't get any supports or structures, but it wasn't enough to pay my bills. It was a very trying time. My heart goes out to the people that are in this situation that didn't have the amazing community that I have that helped me get through this situation. Dehumanizing. I think that's a really important thing to talk about because we talk about a lot in our conflict communication courses when I'm teaching corporations or whatever, because it's such a powerful tool to you do things to people that you would not do to a person. Because once you see something is not like you, you can do more damage to them. This is why now the military doesn't go from Iraq to home. They go and spend two weeks in a resort to calm themselves down, to get their mentality out of the things they need to do to survive. What you have to do during wartime does not fly very well during peacetime. So there has to be a bridge in between. And this is dehumanizing the enemy, which is a necessity in order to keep yourself safe. We love as people to create us groups and them groups, right? We are like this. They are like that. In your experience is people who experience homelessness, are they automatically in a them group? Is that like the default for most people? I would say so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've gone with the team that works with 
the fresh homeless people, they have certain things that most of the guys they work with or girls right. are less than three months into homelessness. Bring them to a landlord and right off the top, the landlord's like, oh, uh, well, are they going to do this? Are they going to do that? What are they like? They, they start making certain assumptions that I'd say 90% of the time are incorrect. And this is less than three months. This is just a blip. This is, yep. this is, I can still fire you for no cause trial period amount of time. And they're already yep. making these assumptions because they experience this. Yep. What one of the couples that we were working with for this, this exact situation, if they were less than three months homeless. They came through a detox center. They were, so they were sober. They were homeowners previously and landlords still gave them the, oh, well, why should we rent to you? Made the assumptions that they were going to create problems. When you encounter that everywhere you go, mm -hmm. literally everywhere you go, every human being you come into contact with, it's not long before helplessness and depression and a huge list of issues start developing on the mental health aspect. If every human you talk to set, treats you like, oh, are you going to rob me? Oh, you smell. Oh, here's a problem with you. How do you deal with that? Right. And we're so, we're such social creatures that if everybody thinks you're other than them, you're lesser than, then you start to believe it yourself, right? Because we are, we are a reflection of how the world treats us. And I could easily see, I went through this in my emo twenties where I'm like, well, if everybody thinks I'm a monster, then I'll be a monster. Ah, oh, so dramatic. Right. But yeah. in a more serious case here, it's insane to me that people would treat these people, especially like less than three months, like not understanding that this is a blip. This is, you know, something happened that wasn't within their control, obviously. If there's no road to redemption, then people will stop seeking redemption, right? If there's no, if there's no way to get past this, then of course they're going to get entrenched in this lifestyle because now it's all they have. Yeah, and that's kind of exactly what happened. So th that's why they came up with this program. They noticed it. They noticed it pre-COVID, but then COVID hit, and they noticed shelters were so full that they couldn't get 200 people into it in a night. Right. And then add the COVID restrictions into that, where the government said you have to meet certain guidelines, and they cut the shelters had a quarter of the capacities that they did at pre-COVID. So right. these people had nowhere to go nowhere to find help they had nothing and a lot of them just sunk further into that hole you get sad you get depressed you're on the street well violence and drugs start they become the coping mechanisms to make you survive there's yeah. no right yeah you need to numb that pain somehow yeah of course i don't know how i understand that empathy is in short supply but i don't understand how people can't see this like how they couldn't put themselves in somebody's shoes like this what are some of the biggest hurdles that you found the people are facing like is it the social pressure is it the no support network like what are the biggest issues that they're having that maybe could be solved, but aren't just because of the cultural view? Probably the easiest thing to solve would be more governmental supports, more, more supports that throw these people a lifeline, possibly even before they get to these places. One of the biggest obstacles I've seen, especially when talking to people, is the government. And when you're already distrustful of the institution, then all of a sudden you try to go and get on, say, social welfare, while that takes eight weeks, it's not an overnight thing. It take, Their process got ridiculous from pre-COVID. It was you go online, you fill out a form, they call you, you're good. Now it's 
you call them two weeks later they'll call you you'll have three days to get your bank statements your id all your personal information to them and then it, then they'll make their decision after that well if you're living on the street getting your personal information isn't as easy as going to the wallet you had stolen last week so then you have to get your id that's a uh, to get it out of province in Canada, I heard, I've heard it could take up to six months to get a birth certificate. Wow. That's true. We lost, we had a fire in 2019. We lost everything. Didn't have a fireproof safe. Do now. Didn't then. So uh, that's, that was our experience too. Even just getting birth certificates and whatever takes forever. And it's so much paperwork and they ask for things that you need a birth certificate to have and you can't yep. get them until you get the birth certificate. So it becomes this like circle. Yep. There right. is so much activism theater happening with the uh, government, with people out there. What do you feel that people like people like myself who are not in the field, but want to help, what are things that we could do to help these people? And other than obviously, number one, changing our mindset on what a person who's experienced homelessness looks like. Definitely change your mindset. I've seen homeless individuals that I guarantee you, you could walk past them on the street. You would never know. Right. I've talked to a homeless person that they were living in their Mercedes because they just could, like, they couldn't give up the car, but that's all they had left was that Mercedes. And you would never know who they were walking by. They know where to get their stuff. The best thing, if you want to do something for them, get familiar with the supports that are in the area. Offer them a ride down there. Offer if if they're interested in it. If you approach them on the street and they don't know you, they've never seen you before. You can offer them the world and they aren't going to listen to you because they don't trust you. But if you walk past the same guy every day, say hi, bring him a sandwich, show that you actually have compassion for him and some empathy, you can start building that trust. And then he might tell you his story. Right. Some of those stories are phenomenally crazy. For a while, I worked with military veterans that were homeless. And one of the guys fought in Afghanistan, came back had trouble adapting to society. His wife left him and it was downhill from there. Right. And you would think that people who go and fight for our country would have some kind of support structure when they come home, but we've seen that is untrue. Yeah, very untrue. Very, very untrue. And even he said it took him three years to get the ability to trust people. And eventually he's like, I, I don't want to live this lifestyle anymore. It's very small things you can do for them. And it, if you want to do the big things, you have to do the small things because you're dealing with people who will not trust you. If they trust people on the street, they get robbed, mugged, stabbed, shot, maced, pepper sprayed, beat. The list goes on and on of what not only the, the people in the vulnerable sector do to each other, but what the authorities do to them. There's stories that are just horrible. So that you need to build that trust up if you're going to want to help them get off the street. Your best bet is, again, get to know them, talk to them a little bit, say hi, how's your day? What for me and you would be minor. Right. To them, that can start changing their world. Basic politeness will start changing their world. That's such a sad state of affairs. It's, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear it, but it's the reality. Let's yep. flip the script. In your experience, the people, because obviously some people are getting out. They were homeless. They're now no longer homeless. If we flip the script and say, let's say I experience homelessness. What are some things I should do to limit how long that's going to last? Let's use your fire as an example. You had a fire. 
you lost all your birth certificates and everything. If you did not have a place to stay, you yourself, go to an emergency shelter, the Salvation Army, the YWMCA, the YMCA, one of those types of organizations, whatever you have in your area. Tell them you had a fire. A lot of them have emergency beds that you can rent, say, $300 a month, and you have a roof over your head, and you have safety, and they'll give you food. So now your basics are covered. Then get your ID back. If you're still working, use that money. There's resources out there. The government, I know in Canada, the different provinces, different governments will have different things to help you get a damage deposit. Look into that. Okay. Go to a public library, search it. Most public libraries have free internet access for people. You just need a library card. Do that. Reach out to these agencies and be proactive. These agencies, you're working officially on the books. They're supposed to have a one person to 15 to 20 people ratio. The reality of it is it's one person to possibly 40, 50 to 100. So you have to be proactive yourself because they just can't. Imagine being a department of two people. You have 50 people that you're supposed to house in a month. How do you figure it out? Right. You can't. Most people don't even like searching for housing for themselves. Imagine doing that for 50 times. So be proactive and help them. Be like, hey, I found this. I found that. Just give me a ride. Do this. Be it. Try to be as proactive as you can. Other things you can definitely, definitely do the reach out. Do your best to stay away from drugs. A lot of these agencies also have counselors that will be available to you. So if you feel like you're getting beat down, go talk to them. Take care of yourself. The more time you spend in a tent on the side of a hill, the harder it is. So the quicker you get out, the higher success rate, the longer you're in, the lower your success rate. Generally speaking, I would agree with that. Also treat it like it could be a life or death situation, especially in Canada. And right. if it's winter time, that is mm-hmm. a life or death situation. That makes total sense. So you mentioned drugs, and this will be kind of like the last thing we talked about before the Patreon part. Drugs exist on a continuum, right? I include alcohol as a drug. So what are some of the worst offenders you've seen? Like what are some of the drugs that cause the most irreparable damage? That's actually a very simple answer. Okay. Meth. Meth, without question, is probably one of the worst things I've ever seen. I've seen them take a perfectly healthy, normal person, you, me, anybody listening. You try it once, it has a 90% addiction rate. Oh my God. Once. You try it twice, it's 100. Wow. And you, I'm not kidding you, you will stab your own mother to get this, if that's what you have to do. Right. And now, especially since COVID, with the borders being closed, people are putting fentanyl into it. And that is a whole different level of the violence you will do, potential overdose you will do, the amount of fentanyl that it takes to overdose. I don't have a picture that I can show you, but Google it. It is so small. It is ridiculous. You would never even notice it. And with the fentanyl, with it being so small, it's so easy for them to mix it in if they're cutting it. I've heard and seen people go out smoke a joint and they're having an overdose in front of me well there's no way the the marijuana and the thc is creating that an opiate overdose is if you see one you will never forget what it looks like it only takes you one one time to see one and you know what it is and it it can happen quick it can happen very quick with the fentanyl i know a ufc professor did a study pre-covid and shelter workers had a 33 percent ptsd rate wow they did it again 
last year. It's working on going through the peer review and the scientific stuff to get published. 47% since COVID because of the overdoses. That makes sense though, right? Especially with all the extra yeah. stressors and stuff. It like that. I would assume that number would have went up, but that's, that's so very high. And do you think that's obviously it's because the event is tra traumatic, but also do you think the type of people that get attracted to social work, that they're more empathetic, they're more caring. So that's going to affect that number a little bit. I, I think to an extent it will, because they're naturally caregivers and naturally caretakers of people. Like they want to go out and help people and bless their hearts for doing that. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's needed. The profession is definitely needed and they do fantastic and amazing things for people. I agree. And you're not getting into that for the money, right? It's not the yacht you're going to buy in social work. It's purely for the good of your fellow human, which you yep. know we need, we need more of. So meth number one, hands down, what other ones are problematic? I'm assuming all of them are in some way, even I've even seen pot wreck lives statistically numbers wise is obviously meth number one King. And I just saw, I just read a study. They did urine analysis of all the major cities and Edmonton's number one for meth. Yay, Edmonton. Yay, number one. Number one. <laughs> There's a lot of meth use and I've noticed it personally here because uh, I travel and drive and I'm always, I'm always out and about. And it went from being something kind of in the shadows to 9 a.m. I'm driving down a major thoroughfare and you're seeing somebody who is clearly high on meth because again the opioid addiction overdose is very prevalent you know when somebody's on meth it's a very oh yeah easy visual to get a hold of so obviously meth is up there like where would the older problem drugs heroin cocaine pcp where do those fall on the list pcp almost you never see anymore really Yep, it's almost gone. Cocaine, I like to call it the business class drug. You'll see it in a lot of high going, high achieving type people. Mm -hmm. You don't see it on the streets a lot anymore. Meth has almost solely taken over everything, probably because of that addiction rate that I mentioned. An astronomical addiction rate. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things you don't even want to consider looking at. If I were to advise anyone on anything for their health, that's avoid meth. Meth, not even once. Yep, not even once. Cocaine, you still run into it. And I'm putting crack with that as well, because right. crack and cocaine, that's just a different way of doing it. Basically, you run into it, but it's probably 10% of the time. Everybody smokes pot. Half the people you see walking down the street are probably smoking a joint instead of a cigarette anyway. Yeah, so true. you'll always see that. But Meth is pretty much starting to take over. And as meth is taking over, everything's getting more violent, right. like physically violent. And so this is a, a thing we talk about, and this will be, unfortunately, the last thing we talk about, this is super interesting, but we got time. In my experience, from what I understand, the most dangerous time for most people with addiction issues is in between highs, right? It's yeah. when they're looking for the thing. Is meth the same way or is meth the in-between and also when they're on it? Because it seems to me somebody on meth is still kind of a problem. No, it's it's in between and on because in between, like everything with addictions, you need your next fix. Mm -hmm. It's no different than you need your next Starbucks. How many people crave coffee throughout the day? Me. I'm one of them. Yep. And so the, the principles of addiction in that way are the exact same. You always look for your next ability to get that. It's just with, with something like meth, it's a thousandfold what you might be expecting it. And then when you're on meth, you're hallucinating. 
you could be going for a good time, a good time, like with anything or a bad time. Your Patreon users will probably get to hear some good on meth stories. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's put the pin right there. That's a perfect segue to get to Patreon. And we're almost on time anyway. So Damon, thank you so much for your experience on this topic. I'm so glad you reached out to be on the show because you're exactly the kind of person I want to talk to. People that are working in the real world that are dealing with this sort of stuff. Promotion on my end of things. I'm in Europe for a month. I'm doing five countries, 10 seminars. Come check it out if you're in the area. All of that will be in the show notes as always. If you're looking to hire somebody for a speech or a workshop on the realities of violence, educational side and proactive skills, get a hold of me. I am doing keynote speeches, corporate events, etc. now. So if you want to get a hold of me, get a hold of me on that. Damon, are you promoting anything? Is there anywhere you want people to get a hold of you? I have nothing to promote. Uh, the best is if you want to find out more, talk to me, follow me on my Instagram, follow the link Brandy gives you. I'm always available for a chat. Well, th thanks, man, because this was, I think, super educational. Also, I always forget this one. At Defense Talks with Dad, the channel with me and my daughter on TikTok. I have to promote it or she yells at me. So TikTok, we're on there as well. At Defense Talks with Dad, where my daughter asks me questions and we talk about self-defense stuff. Defense Talks with Dad, our TikTok is entirely different than any of my other stuff. So if you're always following me on Instagram, you think you're getting the same stuff, you're not. It's a totally different stream of uh, stuff. So check us out there. We are heading to Patreon, patreon.com slash Randy King Live, where Damon going to tell us one of the stories from his experience, which is probably going to be pretty crazy. I highly recommend jumping on. It's the bottom tier, $5 level US, $7 Canadian. So feel free to jump on there for all the extra content from this show and all my other shows. If you're missing the other formats, they're all there. I'm not making new ones, but there's a whole catalog of shows there. Like, share, subscribe, do all the internet stuff, hit every button, including dislike. I don't care. Do it all. Get this out there, especially this episode. This information is so important. Damon, thank you for your time. Listeners, we'll see you on Patreon or next week.